you have your Bibles out, James chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 13 this morning. I want to ask you a question this morning, so I want all the eyes up here, if you would. I want you to think, I want you to interact, I want you to be part of uh, receiving the sermon rather than just blankly uh, hearing it. I want you to listen and I want you to, to, uh, to wrestle with some of these things this morning. Let me ask you this. It's a rhetorical question. It's for you to think. Do you believe that the Word of God can shape a community, a church, to become powerfully redemptive, displaying love through mercy and compassion? Do you believe that? Let me tell you a little story. 1942, this is a true story. Chronicled by Ernest Gordon in his book, Through the Valley of the Kwai, he tells of the miraculous transformation that took place among the Allied prisoners in a Japanese concentration camp in 1943. The year before, in 1942, listen, this is a true story, the camp was a sea of mud and filth, the scene of grueling labor and brutal treatment by Japanese guards. There was hardly any food in the law that pervaded the whole camp. The law that ruled the camp was the law of the jungle, every man for himself. But 12 months later, the ground of the camp was cleared and clean. The bamboo bed slats had been debugged. Green bows had been used to rebuild the huts. And on Christmas morning, 2,000 men were at worship. Friends, what happened? Here's what happened. During that year, a prisoner had shared his last crumb of food with another man who was also in desperate need. That man died, literally starved to death. And among his belongings, his friends around him, they found a Bible. And some who witnessed his ultimate act of love wondered, could that Bible be the secret of willingness to give sacrificially to others? So one by one, listen, the prisoners began to read it. True story, 1942. And soon the Spirit of God began to grip their hearts and change their lives. And in a period of less than 12 months, there was a spiritual and moral revolution within that camp. Do you believe that the word of God is a power to shape redemptive community. And to make those of us called the church displays of his mercy and of his compassion. Do you believe that? Then I want you to listen to the text this morning. And before we get into that, I want to review briefly. And thank you, Tim Van Summer, for preaching last week. I heard he did a great job. I plan on listening to that sermon. Thank you for stepping very capably into this pulpit. But to quickly review two weeks ago, James pointed out in verses 1 through 4 the immaturity of the believers who, who committed or acted out favoritism. Here's what favoritism means in the Greek. It means to receive the face. It means, it's literally its definition, it meant that I would see you, Nelson, and I would make a judgment about you based on my external visual approximation of who you are. And that judgment would dictate the way that I move towards you, the way that I relate to you. That's what this church was doing. Favoritism is to receive the face, only look at the outward, the external, and make judgments. That's what it means to, be in, uh, to practice favoritism. Do you remember the illustration that James gave, verses 2 and 3, the one where there is a church meeting? 
And in this church meeting, into this church meeting, walked a rich man. And as soon as the usher saw the gold-fingered man with his glorious robes, he, he escorted him immediately to the seats of honor, right near where the scrolls were read. And then right after he gets down to the seat of honor, a poor man walks in. And the usher, seeing his shabbily dressed clothes, moves him over to sit on the ground, not even giving him his own footstool. So the usher put him on the ground along the back of the wall. All because of their appearances. This is what was happening in the church. So James continues his argument against favoritism. And listen, friends, he gives four evidences in an open and shut case against favoritism. Why should favoritism never, ever rear its head in our lives and in our church? Four reasons. Number one, here we go. I hope you got your outline with you. I'm going to teach you a lot of stuff this morning. Favoritism is evidence of a heart far different from God's. It's evidence of a heart far different from God's. Look at what it says. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Now, take notice, friends, I want you to see something. This is one of the ways that Denise and I parent. We try to. When we're parenting the best way, we have young children. Here's what we do. And we have hard words for our children, words of correction. When we're parenting the right way, what we do is we tenderly take their chin and we lift their chin so their eyes are on our eyes. And then we tell them what we need to tell them. Friends, this is what James is doing. Look what he says. This is what a pastor does. He says, listen, my dear brothers. This is what James is doing. He's lifting the chin of this church and he's saying, look at me. I love you and you've got to listen because what I'm about to tell you determines your redemptive character, the health of your church. He's doing everything he can. This is what pastors do. He he does everything he can to make sure that hearers receive truth that can transform their lives. About 16 months ago, God just crystallized what he's called me to do in my life. Well, you might think, well, Pastor Tim, you've been in the ministry for 14 years. You're a bit slow. Well, you know what? He crystallized for me the nuance of what I am to do in my life. You know what I do? You know what beats in my life? You know what gives me the greatest passion? It's simply this. Ready? It's to take the word of God and apply it to the hearts of people and lead them forward in transformation. I don't know why anybody would want to live a life differently from that. Why would any pastor want to speak to your mind? And leave you in your sin. Why would any pastor want to pump you up with knowledge without driving it to your hearts where you can be changed? This is what James is doing. He's aiming at their hearts because it's transformation. Now listen, it's transformation of the heart that transforms, you've got to get this, transforms churches. And it's transformed churches that transform communities. I hope you agree with that. Somebody ought to be saying amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen just means I agree. So don't be too harsh and don't be too hesitant to say Christianity has a special message for the poor. Friends, I want you to listen to this. Christianity's got a special message for the poor. Here it is. God's heart moves in special ways towards those who are needy and poor. 
You see, favoritism, receiving the face, it's clear evidence that your heart and my heart are far different than God's. You see, here's what James says. Has not God chosen those who are poor? That word chosen is beautiful. Here's what it means. It means it's a word that means to choose for oneself and to give favor to the selected object by establishing a relationship with it. Here's what it means is that God looks at the poor and the needy in a way that is unique and distinctive and different than he looks on the way of other people who aren't poor and needy. It means that he looks on them with favor. He chose them intentionally and, and directly so that he could create a relationship with them and lavish them with blessings. Friends, that's what James is saying. He's had, he has a special relationship of favor with the poor. Now, here's where we grapple with this. Listen, friends, here's what we do. We say, okay, God has a special relationship with poor. James just said it. It's not even arguable. It's so crystal clear. God has a special relationship with the poor. So here's how we interact. Do I? Do I have a special relationship with the poor? Do I see those in need with favor? That invites them into a relationship and moves on their behalf. Does our church have a special relationship with the poor? I mean, after all, James is only saying what, what Psalm 113 says. God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Luke 4, Jesus' own words. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Listen, to preach good news to who? The poor. See, God is always... And consistently shown and demonstrated a special favor toward the poor and the needy of this world. Here's Psalms or Proverbs 21, 13. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Friends, listen, this is so clear. I'm not giving you anything that's difficult. The word of God says that if you and I shut our ears to the cries of the poor and needy, God's not going to listen to our prayers. That's what the text says. He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. When we, we were, when we are oblivious, when we choose to not respond on behalf of the poor and the needy, it's not the poor and the needy that we mock. It's their maker who has a special favor and a special relationship because God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world. Amen. He who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives Many curses. Friends, listen, when Christ grips your heart, when Christ comes into a life and he gives them a new nature, he gives them a new appetite and new desires. And we're like Zacchaeus. You remember that little short tax collector? Luke 19 says, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. So when we love the poor, when we minister to the needy, we are beating with the blood of Christ in our hearts. Seeing, defending, helping, and taking care of the poor is the pure heart of God because he's chosen the poor in the eyes of the world. Did you know that we have opportunities all around us? Let me give you a few, few uh, questions here. Did you know that half of the world, that's over 3 billion, listen, don't let these statistics flow out of your mind. Grapple with them. Did you know that half of the world lives on less than 2 American dollars a day? Did you know that? 
Did you know that nearly one billion people enter the 21st century unable to read a book or sign their own name? Did you know that 30,000 children, friends, these are not inflated statistics. This is right out of the agencies who are administering to them. 30,000 children die every day from malnutrition around our world. Did you know that 1.1 billion people cannot get adequate access to water while you and I, on average, consume 158 and a half gallons of water a day? This isn't a sermon to make us tree huggers. This is a sermon to open our eyes that the world is filled with the choice and the needy people of God. Well, Pastor Tim, that's really interesting, but that's around the world. We live in Easton, a little podunk part of the East Coast. Well, let me tell you what our, our own community looks like. Did you know that in Easton... 29% of all of the residents in Easton are unemployed. That's one out of, that's over one out of five adults. And 11.8% of them are disabled. Did you know that in Easton? Now listen, this is your backyard. Only 13% of people in Easton are college graduates or beyond, while the national average is 32%. Did you know that 48% of the children at Cheston School receive free and reduced lunches that indicates that their family is living below the poverty level of 9,000 plus a year? At March School, the percentage is 34%, just two blocks, three blocks over. A whopping 57% of the children at Paxanosa receiving free and reduced lunches, 30% at Palmer, 7% at Tracy. Did you know that an average of 225 families daily find their way to Salvation Army for food? Friends, the poor and the needy are all around us. And what James is doing, James is lifting our chin... And James is saying, does your heart beat like God's heart with a passion and a love for the poor? See, God's chosen the poor of our world to be rich in faith. Why? So that no one could boast that they deserved or brought about God's grace. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise not many influential, not many were noble, but God chose the foolish things of the world. Why? Look at the end. So that in verse 29, no one may boast before him. So James is in this literary courtyard. He's in this courtroom, rather, and he's he submitted his first evidence of why favoritism to receive the faith must leave the church, must get out of the heart of a Christian, because number one, favoritism reveals a heart far, far different from God's. Number two, pulls out of his bag and he submits the second evidence. And here it is. Favoritism is evidence of a heart without kindness. Look at verse six and seven, if you would. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? You see, friends, listen, the word insulted in the Greek means to treat with contempt. 
That's what it means to insult someone. It means a contempt that's pouring out of your heart through your mouth and through your actions. So to treat with contempt. But the word poor is interesting. The word poor means to crouch low or cower. See, Paul or James rather describes the poor as those who are crouching over and cowering in the midst of all of what's going on in that society. Do you remember at the beginning of this series, I taught you that in the Roman culture, in the ancient world, friends, listen, this is this is so odd to us. There was no middle class. There were the rich, the wealthy and the poor. And there wasn't any social ladder for the people in the poor class to climb up to the wealthy class. Seneca, a Roman philosopher, wrote, consider at the outset how great a majority are the poor. You see, in Roman culture, and this is so interesting to me. Okay? If you don't like this, just I'm going to be kind. Um, try to pretend you like it. In Roman culture, this is the church. That, this is the culture that this young church this is a young church. Barely older than our own church. In fact, it's younger, rather, than our own church here. This young church is growing in this Roman culture, but there were three social orders in Rome. Here they are. You ready? The first one was the senatorial order. You see, in the senatorial order, entrance into this order was based on who you came from, your family lines, and your wealth. You see, in order to be in the senatorial order, you had to have wealth that exceeded 250,000 times the wages of a day laborer. They acquired their wealth, their vast wealth, through land and agricultural production. But there's another order. It's the equestrian order. And this is what Rome, this is the social order in Rome that this church is growing up in. The equestrian order, entrance into this was based solely on wealth. Your background didn't matter. And it required a little under half, 40% of the wealth of a senatorial order person. Equestrians acquired their wealth because they were bankers, entrepreneurs, and merchants. There's a third order. It's called the Decurionum Order. These were the town councilmen and the city officials who, like the senators, gained their money primarily from land. They were title owners. They were barons of what we would call barons, mayors, city officials. And if you saw the movie Gladiator, then this fourth order is going to make sense to you. Alongside all those three official orders was the, the informal Augustales Order. And that consisted of former slaves who were freed and had become well-to-do. In fact, in the movie Gladiator, the character Proximo, a freed former gladiator who purchased Maximus and trained him to fight in the gladiatorial arena and gave him his own armor at the end, that man came from the Augustales order. You see, these, now listen, this is mind-boggling. These four social orders comprised 10% of all of Rome, while the remaining 90% were poor people. See, isn't that mind-boggling for you? 90% of all of Rome were poor people. And today they'd be in the, in the grip of poverty. This is why Abraham Lincoln said, God must love the common people because he made so many of them. 
So the poor people were almost always poor for life. And I want you to understand that. Climb in their shoes for a minute. They had no capacity for any other kind of life. Their family before them were poor. Their children that are coming after them, their future is poordom. There's no way out of it unless it's some miraculous, uh, lucky streak of lightning that strikes them. There's no way out of this. So here they are, the rich person with all the gold fingers and all the glorious robes walks into their church and all these people... People who have never tasted money, all these people have never tasted power that comes from wealth, sees this person and all of a sudden their eyes are riveted. The rich were irresistibly fascinating to them. Riches were incredibly tempting. All of their, their attention was fascinated to them or fastened on them. They admired them. When a rich person would speak in the middle of a church service, all of the ears would give special weight versus when a poor person would speak on the Word of God. And meanwhile, the poor and the crouched slunk even lower. See, James points out the irony of this favoritism since it was the wealthy of the world that were, what he says, exploiting them. Look at the text. Exploiting them means they were exerting tyrannical oppression, harsh oppression over them. You see, what would happen is this. In the Old Testament, they were forbidden to loan money into exact interest. If I gave you money in the Old Testament, I could not ask you to pay interest on it. The law of God forbade it. But what these people were doing is they were loaning money and then demanding the interest from the money. And when the poor people couldn't pay the interest on the loan, they were hauling them into court. You see, the, the wealthy were exploiting the poor. Their money was coming from exploitation. And here's this church that's looking at these wealthy people and putting them up on a platform and idolizing them and showing favoritism. Redemptive community was being torn apart in the pure, holy name of Jesus Christ that you and I, if you're in Christ, have taken. It was being dirtied and his church was creating a public, a public spectacle of hatred. This is why James is teaching. He speaks after Proverbs 31.10. He says, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. In other words, have a heart of kindness. So James now has given us two evidences in this literary courtroom for why the church was guilty of favoritism, why the church must eradicate favoritism. He gives us a third. Verses 8 through 11, favoritism is evidence of a heart that is guilty of sin. He says, if you really keep the, the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, if you receive the face and make judgments and move towards them based on that, then you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. See, favoritism, friends, listen, contradicts the law of love in the gospel. The command to love is at the very heart of the law of God. If you boil all the law of God down and you distill this most utter and central essence, then it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it all boils down to. Why? Because it's the very character. It's the very attribute of God. His very central being is to love. First John 4, 1 says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. But to show favoritism 
is to withhold love from a neighbor and to transgress against the character of God. Now, let me explain something here, because all of us have shown partiality. All of us have shown favoritism at one time or another. There's no exceptions. It's part of our nature to sin. What Paul is saying here when he or James, rather, when he says show favoritism, he, he is using a verb that indicates not an occasional favoritism, but a habitual pattern of favoritism. See, what what James is addressing is the pattern and the habit of the early church in showing favoritism and special favor to the wealthy and to withhold it from the poor. That's what James is addressing here. And so he says to keep the law of God, we must love our neighbors as ourselves, or else we sin. You know what the, the definition Robin Horn is she here? When I candidated at this church 12 years ago, Robin Horn sitting right back there where John Hughes is sitting, I will always remember this, asked me, Tim, can you define sin? And the way I define it then is the way you define it now. And sin means to miss the mark of God's perfect standard of righteousness. Friends, that's what it means when the Bible uses sin. It means to miss the mark of God's standard of righteousness. What's a lawbreaker? Now, this is interesting. A lawbreaker refers to someone who willfully goes beyond God's prescribed limits. Adam and Eve were the original lawbreakers because God cordoned off one tree and they went beyond the limit and took from the tree. And we've all been lawbreakers since. The one in habitual favoritism misses God's perfect holy standard because they intentionally step over the line that God has set. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. They step over that and become a lawbreaker who has sinned. Bottom line, friend, is this. In every case, favoritism breaks God's laws and the result is sin. But James got a whopper here. You ready? He has another evidence to pull out. And friends, this is the big one. This evidence is going to come out and it's going to silence all those who are arguing. All the critics of James are going to be utterly silent for this one because the fourth evidence that he gives in verses 12 and 13 is that favoritism is evidence of a heart that lacks mercy. Heart that lacks mercy. Here's what it says. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over over judgment. See, one of the major themes, you've got to get this. If you're going to be a student of God's word, then grab hold of the themes that are all through them. One of the major themes in the book of James is this. Real life, real faith, genuine faith, valid faith, alive faith, redemptive faith is proven by its works. Real faith is proven by its works. Living faith will be demonstrated by a life of mercy. But we need to clear something up. Because the church has grabbed hold of pop definitions of grace and mercy. That while they seem pretty good, they don't capture the full essence. You've heard grace as defined as um, getting what you don't deserve and mercy being not getting what you do deserve. Let me take you deeper into what grace and mercy really mean. Here it is. 
God extends grace to those who are guilty. So grace is always, listen, grace is always God's loving response to sin. If you want a short definition of grace, it's God's answer for sin. It's always connected to sin. And he extends mercy to those who are miserable because of sin. Whether it's their sin, whether it's another sin against them, or what, what, maybe even it's, it's because of the fallen world lives in sin and bad things happen to us and make us miserable. Mercy is God's movement to relieve and remove misery. That's what mercy is. Grace is God's movement to relieve guilt from sin. Mercy is God's movement to relieve the misery that sin causes in our lives. See, for you and I to live lives of mercy means that we need to learn to move toward the misery of others in an effort to lessen or remove it. That's what it means to be full of mercy. Mercy targets the misery that comes as a consequence of sin. That's what theologically the two mean. James points his pastoral finger. Remember, he lifted up the chin of the church and said, church, listen, I love you. But you've got to see something. And he points his pastoral finger to those in the church who are doing absolutely, listen, nothing to relieve the misery of the poor and needy and instead are showing favoritism to the church. Friends, listen, you're not full of mercy if you're not relieving misery. When we show mercy, we fulfill what the law of love requires. Showing mercy, refusing not to show favoritism or partiality, but loving our neighbors ourselves. This is the evidence that we are in Christ. The hardest place, I think, to show mercy is in your own family. How do we relieve misery in our own family? How about our neighborhoods and our schools and our co-workers and our church and our community? See, living, this is what James means. Please, if you haven't heard anything I've said, yes, tune it in, because here's where we're coming down the end. This is what James means. He says, living a life of mercy proves that your and my faith is genuine. And that genuine faith will receive mercy on the day of judgment. For this reason, he says, speak and act. Those are in present to continual tenses. Keep speaking, keep acting as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Friends, listen, you and I, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, are going to stand before the throne of God on which Jesus Christ himself presides. And for the unbeliever, they're going to be absolutely naked. They're going to have no righteous robes covering them. They're going to be alone and left in their sin. And for the believer, they're going to be dressed in righteous rags. But friends, listen, if you're a believer in Christ, everything you do and everything I do and say are going to come before the withering, loving, holy gaze of God. And they'll either burn up or they will endure. And these will be the rewards for eternal life. See, to live without mercy is to prove that our faith, friends, is dead. And dead faith 
leaves a person without hope on the day of God's judgment. He says judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Now you see. Now you know why James is not pulling punches with his people. He says, listen, my dear brothers, he grips their chin. He moves their eyes to his because what he says is of eternal significance. And his heart is crying out for those in the church to examine their faith and see if their faith is alive. Friends, favoritism violates the law of God. It differs from the heart of God. It is serious and it is deadly and it strips the church of its power. Let me end with this. Thankfully, James doesn't stop on that note for honestly, who among us has not demonstrated favoritism from time to time? So he gives a closing argument and he says this in one clipped, powerful phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen, here's what that means. This is glorious. The word triumph means to boast against judgment. The believer in Christ who lives out mercy to others, who seeks to relieve or remove their misery, those believers in Christ not only know that judgment is coming, they look forward to it. They boast over judgment because they know that when they stand before the Lord, God will see their mercy that has proven their faith genuine in Christ. When we come before God and he sees our lives of merciful actions, he will show mercy to you and I because our mercy will testify to the authenticity of your faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, faith without deeds is dead. And deeds without faith is useless and unredemptive. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. So the question as we close is this. James asks us, he demands that you and I ask ourselves, how is my faith demonstrating itself? Friends, I'm going to ask you that right now. How is your faith demonstrating itself? Is it demonstrating itself in mercy that when you see people in need, people who are suffering, people who are poor, does your, does your soul move towards them? And seek to relieve and remove their suffering. If not, then we're in peril of coming judgment and condemnation. But Pastor Tim, Romans 8, 1 says there will be no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But your faith will be demonstrated through your deeds. Is what James is saying. Favoritism demonstrates a heart far different from God's evidence. Number one. Number two, it reveals a heart without kindness. Number three, favoritism and partiality is sin. And finally, favoritism proves that our hearts lack mercy and our souls are in ultimate jeopardy. Let me end with this statement. But merciful lives will prove our faith genuine and we can confidently look forward to the time that you and I will stand before Christ on that day of judgment. Amen. God's word is powerful, friends. And it has a message for us. If you would just lift your eyes to the Lord and examine your faith. It's not your works that get you saved. Nowhere in James does he teach that. It's your works that give evidence that you are saved and your faith is genuine. 
So let's be people of mercy. Let's be a, a merciful church that seeks to move and to relieve and to lessen the suffering of those around us in our own church, our own families, schools, neighborhoods, and communities. Amen. Would you stand this morning with me? I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Nobody's going to need to leave their pews. All I'm asking is your honesty. Would you close your eyes? Every person in here, just bow your head. My eyes are looking. I'm the only one as far as I know other than our Lord. All I'm asking is for you to raise your hand if this is true for you. Do you lack mercy? Hands all over the place. Do you lack mercy? Raise your hands. Be honest. And is your mercy a display of your faith that seeks to relieve or lessen the suffering of those around you? Let's pray. I'm going to pray for you that raise your hands. And would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the honesty of those in here this morning. Father, I pray that you would let these words echo and resound in their hearts and slowly but surely bring transformation. Lord, I pray that even today they would be given opportunity, Lord, to display the law of love, the royal law of love, Lord, as they seek to relieve or lessen the suffering of those around them. God, I pray that whether it's in their own families, neighborhoods, jobs, schools, uh, church, or community, Lord, that we would have eyes that see the suffering around us. For you have chosen the poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith. Lord, you love them. And I pray that we would be as loving. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. Let, Let us be a church, Lord, that people know because of its mercy. And in Jesus' name, amen.